Hey, welcome back to the Vicious Cycle Podcast, Whiskey, Women, and Water. Today, speaking of women and water, we have our first female guest. We have the very lovely and very talented Madeline Anzavino. Uh, not only is Maddie uh, all those things, she's also my girlfriend. So good morning, Maddie. Well, good morning, but it's actually the afternoon. It's 1217 right now. Ah, and that is how you can tell she is my girlfriend, immediately fucking correcting me on something. Thanks a lot, Maddie. Yes, good to see you as well. Uh, Maddie, why don't you tell us a little bit about your connection to the water? What is it that you do that connects you to the water? So, my career is a lifeguard on the North Shore of Oahu. Also, I surf on all my free time, so I work directly on the water, also all my hobbies are spent in the water, so, yeah. So that's your connection to the water? Yes. Now, you would think I would immediately ask you questions pertaining to being a lifeguard or being a big wave surfer, but instead, I'm going to hit you with a side shot here and ask you, what is it like being the girlfriend of a fisherman? Can you explain to other women or perhaps from other men, although I think most fishermen have heard it, What is it like actually being the girlfriend of an offshore fisherman? Mm, It just feels like I don't see you a lot and that I have to be very patient and very supportive and helping you out and doing whatever I can on land while you're out at sea while also trying to live my own life on land. When does the patient part start? When when do we when will we witness that? Is that is that upcoming for this year or is that when are you planning on this patient part? Don't push it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, <clears throat> for those of you out there who don't know Maddie personally, which is most of you, uh, me and Maddie actually met many years ago when I was selling fish off the dock. Uh, in Honolulu Harbor. I had a direct sales business, uh, direct to the public. It was called Ahi Plus. And basically, we would sell Ahi at wholesale prices directly to the public. Long story short, that eventually life changed. That business got shut down uh, for crazy reasons. Uh, But um, long story short, Maddie used to be this little college girl that would come down and visit me to buy a fish and she would just linger a little too long around the dock. And any man or any fisherman that knows when a girl's hanging around the dock just a little too long, we, uh... We can... It's obviously your version of the story. Well, why don't you tell me your version? Why don't, you, why don't you tell the folks at home? What is your version of how we met then? Well, I heard that there was tuna being sold at the dock, you know, fresh off the boat. So I went to go check it out. And it was you there selling the fish, and I didn't know that it was entire whole tuna fish that I was buying. So I asked you, how much does one of these cost? And you wouldn't really say anything. You told me to name a price, and I said no. And you said, name any price. You won't say the wrong thing. So I said, you know, my price. (laughs) And you dug into your cooler on the boat, and you handed me a fish for almost nothing, and... It's only polite for a woman to stick around and laugh at your jokes, pretend like they're funny, you know, make you feel good. 
for just basically handing over one of your fish. I feel that this story has a lot of holes in it. This sounds awful suspicious. I, that is not how I remember this story happening whatsoever, Maddie. I, I feel like that is uh, <clears throat> a version that perhaps you have modified over the years. My, my, my memory of the situation involved this poor, starving college girl who wasn't getting her proper nutrition and uh, would come down to the boat and claim that she had no money. And these, basically she would just rob these hardworking fishermen with her smile. And uh, it turned out that she had plenty of money, but she just decided to fucking hustle us. So my version of the story is nothing, nothing like that. So I'm gonna have to put an asterisk on her story. I would say, listen carefully to what she says, but uh, also, <clears throat> There might be uh, might be some fact-checking that needs to happen on this conversation because uh, I'm not sure that that's exactly how it all worked out. But anyways, um, I do remember Maddie was a uh, marine biology student. And what was the helpful advice that I had told you about that degree? You asked me what fast food chain I planned to work at. What fast food chain did you end up working at with your marine biology degree anyways? <laughs> No fast food chain. I don't work at one. Well, I'll have to say you definitely excelled past all my expectations with that degree. I'm I'm not gonna lie. So I I can accept when I've been wrong and so total accountability, that was my fault. I thought she would take that marine biology degree and do absolutely nothing with it. But uh it looks like you have proven me wrong because you are surrounded by the water every day. So for the people at home that don't know um, how does one become a lifeguard? So you have to go to tryouts and it's a performance exam. So you have to be able to do a thousand yard run followed by a thousand yard swim in under 25 minutes. And then you have a 400 yard paddle, which you have to do in under four minutes. And then you have a hundred yard run, swim, run. So basically a sprint and you have to do that under three minutes. So you have a performance test and once you pass all that, you have to do a background check and also a you medical. You pass that? Yes. Huh. And also a medical exam, so a drug test. You are able to pass that as well? <laughs> of course. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> well, we're learning a lot of stuff here today. So you, you, you pass the exam. Now... You pass a physical exam. How many people actually pass the uh, physical exam? Does everyone who shows up pass it? No. What would you say the rejection rate is? I would say the rejection rate in the performance exam alone is maybe about 20%. It's Fail out? Right, yeah. How many women show up? for uh, tryouts because I look around on the beaches and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't see very many female lifeguards in Hawaii. Is that true or am I wrong on that? No, that's true. We have currently about 250 lifeguards around the island and only maybe six of them are women. So at some tryouts, they're all different, but at some tryouts, we have no women that show up. Some tryouts, we have a couple show up and you know, it, it kind of depends on how many people actually do go to the tryout because sometimes it's just 20 guys that show up. And this last one we had, you know, over 100 people and maybe 11 of them 
were women. Let's say we have someone who's aspiring to be a lifeguard listening. What are the steps they can take to get themselves in a better position uh, to be qualified for the job, but also be appealing to be hired for the job? I would say spend as much time as you can in the water. Um, Become friends with the people in that community. Also train very hard. You're going to want to, you know, actually do the run swim before the tryout. So train hard and spend as much time as you can in the ocean today knowing what you know about the business what do you wish you had known before you started your career as a lifeguard Um, any big surprises not so much it is I thought I was going to be doing CPR a lot more so I thought I was going to see a lot more death and dying and there's it's not very much life or death every day. So there's a lot more um, downtime than see, people see perhaps on like Baywatch? I don't know if I would call it downtime. I would call it more preventatives and informing the public of hazards and not letting people go out if they don't have the right equipment. How accurate is Baywatch compared to the actual career of a lifeguard? Not at all. Not even a little bit? No. How often do you deal with drug smugglers on the beach or jet ski gangs in Oahu? (gasps) Not often. Has that ever happened during your career? No. I think, um, okay. Was David Hasselhoff a real lifeguard? Do you know? I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, let's just say he was a real lifeguard. Would he have been the most handsome lifeguard of all time? <laughs> um, or just in the top three? Maybe in the top three. Okay. Who, who would you put in the uh, other top three? I'm not going there. <laughs> it, would it be someone in Oahu? I'm not going there. Fair enough. (laughs) Smart girl. Smart girl. Um, Next question. Uh, Perhaps, you know, most of the people listening to this podcast are fishermen. So maybe they don't want to necessarily become a lifeguard, but they may want to date one. Any tips for dating a female lifeguard? How would you go about approaching a female lifeguard? I don't know. Uh, well, because you tell me a lot of fail stories, so perhaps you could tell me one that has worked. I mean, obviously none of them have worked because I was single when I met you or re-met you. So, I mean, if you're if you're looking to date a lifeguard, I would say be very patient. Don't come off strong. Don't use some lame pickup line. What about pretending to drown? Is that a good technique? No, absolutely not. If I pretended to drown, would I get mouth to mouth or how would that work? You would get a slap to the face. A slap to the face. Okay, so that's not a good technique. I remember when I was a kid, there was a movie called The Sandlot and that seemed like a decent enough technique that worked for them. But that's also not true is what you're saying. Not true. Not true. That's that's disappointing. Okay, so um, also I have heard you say that... Uh, what is the saying of, that makes a good lifeguard has something to do with prevention? What is it? What is it that bosses say when there's nothing happening? 
So the best lifeguards don't do the most rescues. They do the most preventatives. Meaning that seeing accidents before they happen? Yes. So technically you have rescued lots of people. They just don't know it. Um, I guess you can say that. I mean, just for example, the other day working at Sunset Tower, the surf was pretty it was decent size you know for somebody who's not water savvy and I see a family of three a guy and his two daughters they were maybe eight or nine years old show up to the beach with floaties with those donuts that you just you know lay around in and if they would have gone in the water they would have been swept out in a second are you suggesting that's inappropriate attire for going in a large surf yes I'd say that's also good to know uh, next question. Uh, so, you now work on the North Shore. And f- for those of... Well, I didn't know this, honestly, before I met you. Uh, working on the North Shore is a pretty big deal. So, for the people that are listening, uh, what is specifically... Uh, why is the North Shore a big deal to work? Why, why is the North Shore renowned? So, the North Shore is known for having some of the biggest, heaviest surf... I would say in the world, you have seven miles of all kinds of different breaks. You have waves that get really huge. You have waves that break over a very shallow reef. You have beach breaks, shore break that, you know, break in about six inches of sand where people get injured a lot. You have currents that are very strong. So it's some of the heaviest waters in the world are on the North shore of Oahu. Who were the people that were most influential uh, in getting you to where you wanted to be? I I know your dream was to be a North Shore lifeguard, and that dream is now achieved. You're living it. Who were the most influential people in getting to that point? There, so there were a couple people. I would say ever since my high school days, I knew the legend of Eddie Aikau. You know, he was a the first lifeguard at Waimea Bay. He's just known for his service and known for his passing. You know, he was lost out at sea, so his story was very intriguing. And being a North Shore lifeguard ever since I was in high school was something that was so amazing and so hard to get to. So there was the whole Eddie Aikau end of it and I also have a couple of friends up there since who I've known since before lifeguarding and I actually know a guy who he must be in his 50s now he's been lifeguarding for 20 years and he told me that you know 20 years into his career he loves coming to work every day still and I've never heard anybody say that before so that had a big influence on my Sounds like you don't know many fishermen, because most fishermen I know would say that they still love their job. <laughs> but please, continue. No, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I think, though, a lot of people connected by water feel that way, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I think anytime you're doing something that uh, where you're following your passion, I think it makes work go by a lot easier. Not to say that you won't have hard days, but I think when you're doing what you love, it goes by much quicker. Let me ask you something. You're a female lifeguard. Do you run into 
circumstances where um, you feel like you've been overlooked or um, perhaps uh, you don't get the same opportunities as men uh, because it's a male-based job, like a very dominant base. Have you, have you experienced that at all in your career where you felt like you were getting passed over for opportunities because you were female? I, I wouldn't say so much opportunities, but my last couple years of working in town, I definitely did feel that I, sometimes my ideas or my words weren't taken seriously because I was a female and just not feeling like I was very part of the group, you know, and it, it did feel like me being a woman had an effect on the people around me but I do I work with a great group of guys and they're all very supportive and I've only been on the North Shore for about you know two weeks now so congratulations thank you so as far as it's been on the North Shore everybody is very supportive I don't feel like I'm treated less at all I feel like I'm just treated equal I feel like I'm treated like somebody who just transferred up and you know, I shouldn't be giving any special treatment or anything less. And I just, I feel pretty equal and that's what I want. Well, that's fantastic. Do you feel that perhaps because of the severity of the situations that the lifeguards get in on the North Shore, that perhaps you have to be more of a co cohesive team and maybe because the likelihood of a, a rescue is much higher than say, um, working like in town or Waikiki that, um, or the severity of rescue do you, do you feel like maybe the guys are tighter because of that that's that's a possibility um i mean i don't want to i don't want to say that any lifeguard on the north shore is more than the lifeguards in town or you know vice versa i don't want to say that they're any less than the guys on north shore you know because they're not every we all have to do the same tryout so it's hard for me to kind of into that what are the most kind of accidents that you actually see because uh, I'm sure there's not a giant rescue every day like what, what are the majority of the type of things that a, a lifeguard deals with on a day-to-day -day basis is it you know do you have jellyfish things you have complaints uh, one thing I've noticed in my time a lot of times I've noticed that people seem to think that the lifeguards are like fucking like uh, like tour agents like I, I'm amazed and some of the time that I visited some of the questions. Is that is that just my timing or is it that just everybody seems to think that you guys are like an information booth? No, you're you're exactly right. People do treat us like an information booth. I had somebody last week come up to the tower and ask me if he could buy board shorts from us and I have people <laughs> What? <laughs> and I have people asking me, you know, where's this beach? Where can I go snorkel? What can I do? How do I get here? So I do have a lot of people treating it like an information booth. And when it's a slower, calmer day, it's kind of okay. I don't really mind playing tour guide. But when it's a little heavier out, I do get a little agitated at that. When I met you, I was told that your nickname was the world's meanest lifeguard. <laughs> How did you get that nickname? So we do have rules around the tower that the public need to abide by and sometimes they take the rules a little too personal and sometimes you just have to be very stern with the public and they take it the wrong way so please explain so for instance if I have 
my cone set up in front of the tower and in front of the rescue board. That's so people don't plant their towels, their umbrellas in front of my entryway between the tower and the water. You know, it's not because I'm trying to claim all this territory. It's because that's our safety protocol. So when I ask somebody to move, you know, sometimes I get a little bit of attitude and, and just not in the mood to be friendly all the time when I'm getting heat for that. I have to ask you, because this is my favorite story about lifeguarding, and it has nothing to do with big waves or anything, but I've told people this, and not, and some people just don't believe me, but for our listeners at home, can you please tell them about the legend of Lauren Smalls? <laughs> so Lauren Smalls is a homeless alcoholic who jerks off in public beaches nutshell he carries around no no, don't go in nutshell please tell the complete story because (laughs) i i want people to understand the ludicrousy at one point during covid that this man was running around and not getting in trouble but at the same time they were enforcing people who were sitting on the beach by themselves with masks so please go on so yeah he he carries around porn magazines with him and he wears this white butcher apron He's also known to be walking around with a hockey mask on. So this gentleman is walking the beach with a hockey mask on, <laughs> a apron, and a stack of pornography. Is that correct? Yes. And his name is Lauren Smalls. His name's Lauren Smalls. And so he's a serial masturbator on the beach. Yes. And how is it that one keeps getting back out onto the beach to do this? Like, why isn't he not, like, put away? Like, how does that work exactly? Any idea? <laughs> That is a question for the police department because when I see somebody jerking off on my beach and I call the cops and they come and they don't arrest him, I ask myself the same question. How many times, like, true or not, true or false, during COVID, they were arresting people for sitting on the beach without having a mask on by themselves, but they were letting them learn small masturbate. Is that true? That is true. Yeah, I, there, I saw there was a woman sitting on the beach by herself, and sh- they came and they handcuffed her, and wrote her a ticket and walked her off the beach. And you know, about a week prior to that. But but Lawrence Smalls is waxing his dolphin. Yeah. So a week prior to that, uh, you have Lawrence Smalls jacking off on the beach midday in the public I call the cops and they come up to him and they tell him to walk away is it true or not true that there's actually like a call on the radio because this happens so frequently what do you mean a call on the radio like the Lawrence Smalls call is that true or not true that he's like like when a cop shows up they know who it is already oh yeah they yeah they all know he's yeah all the cops know who he is and, but is it, do you think, I mean, have you talked to the police? Is it just because they've taken this guy in so many times that they just can't be bothered to deal with him? Or do you think it's because he's a serial masturbator and nobody wants to touch him? I think maybe a little bit of both. I heard that I, one police officer told me that he's been arrested hundreds of times. And, you know, they arrest him and he's back out on the street and, you know, he's just a little off mentally. So no lesson learned, no remorse no nothing oh i see so there's a there's a mental component to the serial masturbator on the beach (laughs) 
I could see that, I guess. <laughs> I could see that. That's kind of shocking that, but it doesn't surprise me. I guess uh, that doesn't surprise me. So let's get away from Lawrence Smalls and head towards the, uh, the North Shore. So not only are you a lifeguard, but uh, you are a big wave surfer. And uh, this year you participated in the first woman's big wave tournament of its type. Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so it was, well, the first women's only big wave surf contest, meaning that there is the big wave tour, but there's a men's division and a women's division. So this is the first contest that has been held that is women only. Um, there's a lot of girls on the tour and a lot of girls who have been invited to previous contests who were automatically put in. So if you weren't automatically entered, then you had to submit pictures of yourself on big waves to qualify to be in the contest. So for those of you that are listening that don't know what a big wave is, because I honestly didn't really know the difference, when would you start to say, like, what is a big wave? How big? Well, that, that answer is... That, it's hard for me to answer that, but according to... The Red Bull Magnitude Contest, the minimum... Which was the contest you were in? Yes. The minimum wave entry is... You can measure it 15-foot Hawaiian or about a 30-foot face. So waves are measured in Hawaii by their backs, correct? Yes. And so basically, I realize there's some plus or minus, but basically that means the face of the wave would be double. About, yes. So... The minimum wave is 15 feet, so the minimum wave for the contest was a 30-foot wave. Yes. Tell someone like myself that has never been on a wave like that, will never be in a wave like that, I pray that I never even see a wave like that on my boat, how does one find themselves on purpose in a giant wave like that? I mean, let's hear your story. How did you start surfing, and how did you progress your way up into these giant waves that you're in today so i i started surfing when i was about 11 years old and that was in southern california and you know the surf just does not get very big over there so i've been a short border on small waves my whole life i moved to the island in 2012 so almost 10 years ago and you know still living here surfing the north shore i kept surfing small waves and about it's been about three years ago now I was having an episode of depression I was having a really hard time with life and that's when I transitioned from smaller waves and began you know pushing myself into heavier waves bigger surf let's uh let's not just yada yada over the depression what was it that caused that depression and how did that depression ultimately motivate you into bigger and bigger waves? So in, in 2018, I had lost my mom. It was very sudden and unexpected and that, you know, it hit pretty hard, you know, losing somebody that close. I, it was like nothing I've ever gone through before. I I was very emotional, very sad, angry, just felt lost and broken and you know I was really battling I was I had suicidal thoughts running through my head 
Um, and I, you know, I just felt I, a lot of it I don't know how to explain, but there were some days when I was going through that where the surf was a lot bigger than my comfort zone. So I kind of just stood on land looking at it and I thought, you know what, screw it, who cares? I'm just going to go out anyways. I, you know, I don't care. I'm not scared anymore. Not scared or felt like you didn't have anything to live for? Uh, maybe a little bit of both. You know, just felt like I had no purpose in no direction anymore for that little short period of time. And once I got into bigger surf, I you know being out there it's it's scary and a lot of surf a, a lot of regular surfers won't admit this but surfing is scary no matter what the size is it it can be scary you're on a wave you're getting held underwater against your will and you never know when you're going to come back up so surfing can be very scary and it's very powerful you know and it doesn't have to be that big to be powerful so yeah surfing is just it's a scary sport. It's difficult. So when I would paddle out in those bigger conditions, I, you know, kind of, it started to hit a little different and, you know, I, my mindset totally changed and I felt like I wasn't ready to die. And all these thoughts started filling my head with, with about what I have to live for and how I can't leave my sister behind and all kinds of reasons why I you know I'm just not ready to die yet so that was a that kind of drew me back in just having that fear and having that helpless feeling out there so that you know kind of drew me back in the water and once you start catching those waves like you just feel so accomplished and so like you faced your fears and just so happy and emotional and you know like nothing I had ever felt before and it totally turned me around and it it changed my whole life it changed my mindset on a lot of things and it just it really turned me around do your best although you say it's an undescribable feeling what explain what it feels like to catch a 30-foot wave what does a 30 foot face wave what does that feel like so it just when you're looking down you know it's just you have this about a couple seconds to think okay I'm in it I'm gonna go or you know am I gonna chicken out and pull back and not go so once you finally do just let go of that fear and you just drop in and go it just you know it's so like thrilling and is there a sound yeah there's you can hear the wave breaking following behind you it's it's very loud and you know you're just you're going so fast and when when waves get a little bigger they're very steep so you really have to position yourself right and you have to hang on really tight and make sure you don't fall off because you're you know it's steep and you're going so fast and you know, it's just like, it's scary, but it's also like, once you're in it and you know you made the landing, it's like, wow, I I did it, I stuck it, I went, and it just feels like very accomplishing. That sounds incredible. So, let me ask you this. There's nothing better 
obviously, than catching a giant wave like that. What has been your biggest failure in your pursuit of giant waves, and what did you learn from it? My biggest failure is um, just having some days where I'm so terrified and just struggling and, you know, just being outright scared and not catching a wave and paddling in. And once I do, I paddle in and get to the beach and most days I, I stand there and when I drive home, I'm just kicking myself and about the fact that I never actually went for one or never actually caught one. And it's a pretty terrible feeling. It just feels like I, I failed. Like I let myself down and I let a bunch of other people down who have been kind of along this journey with me and who are some of those other people who do you feel like you could have let down um a lot of mentors and so who are those people who who uh, in your lifeguarding career you know you, you you kind of mentioned a few people along the way who are the my biggest mentors have been and this is in no particular order because I have multiple Mike Carroll a friend from surfing has had a big influence he's the one who introduced me to everybody on the North Shore all the the gang that I surf with uh, there's Dean Kagawa he shaped me a gun for Waimea and he also has helped a lot with what to do when you're held underwater he's pointed out lineups pointed out shallow spots rocks what to do um also ian masterson he has given me so much information on waimea bay he's pointed out lineups he's pointed out what to do at certain angles you know just so much information ian masterson has been a big help um my sister you know and there's so many more people but those are the top ones I can think of. Also, Alika. Alika actually paddled me out at my first session. Alika who? Alika Annex. Awesome. Um, when you say your sister, your sister was a pro surfer, correct? Um, yeah, she she was a pro surfer. Uh, she's not competing anymore ever since she started lifeguarding, but she used to compete. She was in NSSA. Uh, where's your sister a lifeguard now? She's an LA County lifeguard. And uh, pretty interesting. So who was a lifeguard first, you or your sister? My sister. Was that also part of what motivated you to become a lifeguard? Yes. Yeah, she actually is my the number one person who influenced me on trying out. She, she became an LA County lifeguard, and while I was still, you know, trying to figure out some stuff, I was home visiting, and... She had me come down to the beach while she was working, and we were doing a little run-swim, little beach workout with her and her coworkers, and it was just so much fun, and they were all so friendly, and the only thing that was running through my head was that, you know, the only difference between me and them right now is that they're getting paid to do this, and I'm not, so I may as well try out and try to be a lifeguard, so... That's when I started to train. Who's a better lifeguard, you or your sister? <laughs> My sister. Why? Because she's been doing it longer. That doesn't mean she's better. Yes, it does. Why does that make your sister better? Because she's more experienced. She knows 
what to look for better than I do. Who's a better surfer, you or your sister? My sister. Even on big waves? <laughs> I don't know. Who's ridden a bigger wave, you or your sister? I don't know. Oh man, you're just being you're you're being shy here. Um, somebody's listening out here, and and I and I have a question about this myself. So you know, you talked about going from shortboarding and shore, and some people might not know this, but you ride a different board, right? And and I heard you refer to uh, Dean shaping you a gun. Um, but for those of you us that don't know, what how does that work when you get on these giant waves? What is required? I mean, what kind of equipment is required versus um, when you're just, you know, starting off? So pretty much how it works is the bigger the wave, the bigger the board you need. So if you're just shortboarding a beach break, I ride about a five foot nine. And when I'm surfing Waimea, my, my boards range from a nine foot eight to a ten foot four. So pretty big, doesn't fit in my car. So as you progress into bigger waves, you needed to get yourself a bigger board. When did that moment happen? And I I guess what I'm going at here, I know this already, but you're known for this pink board. What is the story behind this pink board? So my, my favorite pink board, it was shaped by Al Chapman. So it's a Brewer Chapman it's an A2. I would call it a mini gun, but it has changed my surfing. It's it's thick, it's big, it's bright pink. It really stands out. Um, and I actually purchased that board. You know, my first my first gun with my mom's inheritance money. Um, most of my listeners use a gun to shoot animals or fish so can you explain to us what exactly a gun means so a gun is a big wave surfboard and that's just a style yes okay i didn't know if something specifically made a bigger board a gun or not or if that was just a style so your first gun you actually bought with your mother's uh inheritance money and that's the board that we most often see you out there today on is that correct Yes, it's probably my most ridden board. I surf that on sizes ranging from, you know, maybe four to five foot Hawaiian up to about 10 to 12 foot Hawaiian scale. What is your favorite surf break? You could surf anywhere on a perfect day. Where's it going to be? Waimea. Second favorite surf break. Waimea is not working that day. Where do you want to be? Probably Laniakea. Or Jocko's, either of those. Someday you have children. Where do you want them to learn how to ride a ride a wave? Uh, probably Lonnie's. That's the first place you'd ever take your child to surf is Lonnie's. I mean, I would have to. It depends. How about your most nostalgic wave? What, what, where could you surf that would bring you back to your childhood? Bring me back to my childhood. I could. What was the first wave you ever surfed? Manhattan Beach Pier. Manhattan Beach Pier. As a lifeguard and a big wave surfer, what are things that you, what myths about both would you like to uh, break? Uh, One myth about big wave surfers is that a lot of people who don't surf big waves think that we're fearless or, you know, are just used to it and 
you know, just, you know, aren't scared out there, but that's a common misconception. Um, it's very scary. No matter how many times you've done it, it's, it's scary because it's just not too often where the waves actually do get that big. So there's not a lot of practice time, I guess I could say, but, um, big wave surfers do get scared, you know? And a myth about lifeguards that you would like to dispel. Or is it all true? Because, again, I grew up watching Baywatch. Is that... <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's hard for me to say. I don't know how people look at lifeguards anymore without... Uh, I... There's no... So everything about lifeguards I've ever heard is true. Like what? What do you think about lifeguards? Well, what, what, what do you think? Well, first mean? of all, I didn't really know that there was so many men lifeguards because all the lifeguards... I, I was actually really opened up to this. I thought from Baywatch there was like one guy that looked like David Hasselhoff and then a bunch of women who worked, to be honest. <laughs> so I, I'm going to say, honestly, my first experience with lifeguarding, I was pretty disappointed because I thought it was kind of the opposite, you know, of what the reality is. So why are you giving me the death stare right now? You, you asked me about what I thought. I just was... I thought there was more women in it. So... I guess that that well, I guess we've already dispelled that myth that there aren't actually that many uh, women in lifeguarding. Right, that is very true. Um, so stay on task with my podcast. I think it's a beautiful story, and my podcast is about water. But we do have to ask: What's the biggest fish you've ever caught? Maybe a ten-inch nainui. And where was that? That was at Cromwell's. Did you eat it? Yes. How'd you eat it? Okay. Beautiful. Um, I know we had touched on this in the past, but uh, I thought this might be kind of good advice. Now, you used to actually like to go fishing by yourself a lot, right? Yes. And what happened to that? So, I I found a lot of peace taking my fishing pole right down the street to the beach and, you know, catching fish on my own. I don't... I, I liked being alone. I liked having that peace. And I would have so many guys walking by just trying to strike up a conversation about what I'm doing, what I'm catching, and also some of the things they would say were a little belittling, like acting like I don't know what I'm doing, and if it wasn't that, then I felt like I was getting hit on, or, you know, just a bunch of guys walking by trying to have a conversation when all I want to do is fish in peace by myself, and that got very irritating, so I just, I just stopped going, I, I just stopped going alone, so that meant I stopped going. I could appreciate that. I mean, a lot of us, we go to fish to escape. And so, hear that, guys? If you see a woman fishing alone, maybe just give her some a little bit of extra space and just kind of think about it like why we go. A lot of us grab a rod to, to escape and get away from the noise and land. So, if you see a woman fishing, maybe just give her, give her, give her the same amount of space you would want if, uh, if you were fishing and in your happy spot. Not every... Uh, not everyone is out there um, because they want to talk to other people. Maddie, I, uh, I greatly appreciate this conversation. Um, I do want to ask you, if you were in my shoes right now, what is a question that you would ask yourself? What would you, what would you, what, what do you think I should ask you that maybe I missed? About any of the subjects. Correct. Um, I don't know. I can't. I can't think of any. 
How about uh, any inspiring words to uh, people in general, but maybe a, a woman who's listening that may want to be a lifeguard or a big way surfer? Any inspiring words to end this with? I would say just if there's something you want, go after it. Even if it seems so out of reach, if it seems impossible, just go after what you want and do whatever it takes. Also, be patient while you're doing it because if you want something bad enough, you'll get it. Beautiful words. And with those words, I just want to ask since they were such beautiful words. Most beautiful thing you've ever seen on the water? Most beautiful thing I've ever seen was at Laniakea at a sunrise, you know, surf session. We were dawn patrolling. The sun was rising from the east. So it was on shore because we were surfing the north shore. And you had this little offshore storm, even though on land it still was fairly sunny. So you have the sun coming up and it just turned the water totally pink all these different shades of pink and blending in with the blue it almost looked like like a light cotton candy and it started getting brighter throughout the morning and there was also a rainbow because of that storm offshore so there was a rainbow forming and just all these different colors of pink and it was so gorgeous i'll never forget that morning you paint a beautiful picture my friend well, I like to end these things on a high note, and I think that's a great way to do it. Maddie, thank you very much for uh, putting up with my bullshit in general, and thank you <laughs> very much for coming on this podcast. I think you're a very inspiring young woman and uh, or lady, depending on who you ask. Um, so thank you for being here. Thank you for being who you are. I appreciate you, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will as well. So thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Love you. Love you too. Hey guys, thanks for listening. That was a fun podcast. Definitely different than uh, different than uh, what you guys have heard so far. Definitely a lot less fishing based, but uh, still very much connected to the water and women, of course. Um, if you guys are interested in following Maddie, you can follow Maddie on Instagram at Maddie South Bay. Um, uh, also. If you're not already following me, please follow me, Vicious Cycle Fishing on Instagram. Uh, if you guys have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to send me messages. But you can also leave a voicemail. Um, and if it's uh, if you leave a voicemail on the uh, Anchor app uh, and it feels like it's something appropriate or maybe even wildly inappropriate, uh, you may find yourself on the air. So don't be afraid to ask. Um, the other thing I really wanted to point out, if you guys are enjoying listening to... Uh, uh, to our content, uh, I was recently on a podcast uh, called Tricks of the Trade, and uh, if you haven't heard that, if you look up Tricks of the Trade, uh, you can listen to me on the other end of the uh, microphone being questioned. So just want to thank all you guys again, and uh, I really appreciate you listening. I've been blown away by the success of this so far. It's just gone above and beyond. Uh, what I thought would ever happen. And um, so just thank you so much. And we'll just continue to keep on uh, talking to people and discussing life on the ocean and those that, uh, that surround it. So uh, thank you very much. Have a beautiful day. Aloha.